0: and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, when you hear the beep, tell me everything. I was waiting for the beep. Beep. Well, I'll tell you everything. (laughs) Um, We're back with our extended coverage of 2003's The Recruit, the Al Pacino Colin Farrell spy movie we spoke about a couple of days ago. Um,
1: But we have a very special guest joining us this week. That's right, we do. We are talking to director Roger Donaldson, who helmed not just The Recruit, but also No Way Out, which we covered on the show, and The November Man with Pierce Brosnan, which we will cover on the show at some point in the far-off future or near future. We don't know yet. It's all very up in the air. But yeah, it's um
0: yeah, this guy's also responsible for a lot of your favourite films, Dante's Peak, Species, even Cocktail, he's the man behind them all. Uh yeah, it's it's not often we get to talk to someone who's done several spy movies. Like we'll speak to like Jeremiah Chechik who made the Avengers or that sort of thing. But to have a bona fide Hollywood director with a ton of clout and a lot of hits in his filmography, it's Quite an honour, so I think without further ado, Cam, roll that interview. And joining us now on the show, the director of some of your favourite films and some of our favourite spy films, it is Mr. Roger Donaldson. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you for coming on the show. We've spoken about a couple of your spy movies already on the show. Um, and uh, we're eager to sort of take them apart and talk about them all with you because you've got some very different spy entries uh, when you look at the the, the complete works there. Yeah. Um, But I think maybe before we get to the films themselves, let's just talk a little bit about you um, and just what made you want to get into directing and filmmaking in the
2: first place? Oh. oh. It's the billion-dollar question. I I, I went to college and I was going to be a geologist. Mm Mm-hmm. And I realised after working out in the uh, wilds of Australia that geology really was a pretty lonely life for a single young man. And uh, my real passion was photography. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I finished up moving from Australia to New Zealand. I became a photographer. And that uh, quickly morphed into shooting commercials and documentaries. And that morphed into uh, you know, ultimately directing movies. Okay. Producing, writing, whatever it took to make them.
0: And, I mean, was film something you were interested in from an early age? Were you, were you sort of fascinated by films, or was it more just a photography led you into it?
2: Well, uh, I, you know, Australia was not, in, back in the uh, 60s, early 60s, was not exactly the centre of filmmaking in the world. And, uh, you know, my, my dad's passion was American movies, and we'd do things like go to the drive-in movie on a Wednesday night and see a you know, double feature of any Murphy's To Hell and Back and stuff like that. And then my mum was a bit more... Uh, her mother was English and sort of had come from London and was a bit more uh, demanding of of the, the intellectual side of life, I guess you'd say. And uh, she liked to go and see uh, foreign movies like those early Bergman movies, and we would go down to Melbourne often from the town that I lived in and, uh, you know, go and see some you know, more exotic fare. So between the two of them, you know, became a passion for movies and all sorts of movies, really. And was there a
0: particular style of film a director perhaps that caught your eye at a young age something for you to sort of look towards
2: i i do remember those early bergman movies you know they were so graphic and they're black and white sort of you know they were very you know they, they stuck with me i mean those images still stick you know still um
0: well i think what we'll do in terms of looking at the spy films we'll, we'll try and go in a timeline so we'll start with your first film um which is one of our favorites, which is No Way Out.
2: Right. Um, it was so long ago, I actually watched it again this morning. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. And uh, so it's you know, fresh in my mind. And uh, I have to confess, it's not a bad movie. No,
1: not at all. In fact, we uh, talked to Ross and Marshall Thurber, who um, directed the movie uh, Red Notice, for example, and he cited this as his favorite spy movie of all time.
2: Well, it's got a great plot, you know, and um, people like, you know... Uh, Kellen and uh, Gene Hackman and uh, Sean Young, you know, they all did a great job real pattern.
0: Patton. Absolutely. So I suppose the first question is always when it comes to looking at these films. And you've done a couple of films by this point already. What um, made you interested in doing a, a spy movie, and what got you connected to the film?
2: Well, you know, I came to Hollywood, and I did The Bounty, and then uh, what was the next thing I did was Marie, which was a sort of, you know, a story of um, a spy, not really, but a thriller. Mm-hmm with Sissy Spacek and Morgan Freeman and um, people like that. And then uh, I think this was, the th- this was the third movie I did. So, you know, I mean, I like the script. I like the people that were making it. Um, you know, Ryan Pictures, I've been involved with before on The Bounty. Um, so, you know, uh, there were lots of reasons why I wanted to do it. And I thought that Kevin was, you know, going to be a fast-up and coming actor. And I thought that Gene Hackman was as good as they come. So, you know, there was a lot going for him.
1: Yeah, because this is like right at that point where Kevin Costner is about to explode. Like, was there a real sense of that when you were signing on to do it?
2: Well, you know, the, uh, as a filmmaker, you're always trying to be one step ahead of the curve, as it were. And, uh, you know, Kevin was, 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 I mean, it was probably Laura Ziskin, if, um, if, if I can remember correctly, that, you know, it was her idea that Kevin was, you know, an up-and-coming star, and I didn't take much convincing. I liked his work. I saw a, what was it called? Was was it Fandango or something like that? Silverado? No, no, it was like a road movie. Where he pulls the front, somebody pulls the front of a Cadillac. I think it's called Fandango. Right. Anyway, that movie, I saw him in it, and he was great, and I was like, I didn't need any more convincing. I thought he had a lot of potential. And he did, more than I even anticipated.
1: No kidding, and I mean... You know, he's obviously, this is like his first like major um, leading role. He was doing the Untouchables, I believe, around the same time. But like, you know, you would work with him later on like 13 days where he's like at that point, you know, really gone through the course of being a movie star. But at this point, what is it like working with this sort of up and coming star?
2: Well, to be honest, he was the same, you know, first and second times I worked with him. He was a very determined, talented, ambitious young guy. Who had a lot of you know good ideas, really great ideas about how to make a film, and uh, you know filmmaking is a very collaborative exercise anyway. So you know, Kevin and I got on well.
0: Well, you, you um, you mentioned that you actually went back and watched it this morning, um, and I actually watched it again the other day as well. So just for yourself, looking back on on the project itself, is there something that jumped out to you, like a performance that really jumped out to you, uh, apart from Kosner?
2: Well, uh, you know. I I, you know, I just, I think I was, you know, after having made so many movies since then, you know, you, you get a very critical eye and I just think the performances are really fantastic. I mean, just Gene Hackman's uh, exceptional, the way he manages to get the sort of humour into it, the darkest of moments. I mean, Kevin's, you know, great looks, his fabulous eyes. I mean, there was so much about him that I didn't really sort of remember about until I saw this film again.
1: One of the really genius aspects of this movie is the way it pulls out the rug of the audience where you you know you think you're getting something of a you know romantic drama perhaps and then they pull the rug out from under you and it turns into a procedural. And one of the things I really noted on my rewatch last night was basically the love story aspect ties up about 43 minutes. And in that first 43 minutes there's a lot going on in terms of table setting, character introductions. I would love to know just from you about getting the audience invested in that relationship in such a short amount of time, and how you pull that off.
2: Well, I think you know there was real chemistry between the two of them, and I think Sean Young, you know, had a, you know an incredible sort of personality that comes across on the character. She's quirky, she's gorgeous, she's sexy, she's intelligent, she's a great talent. You know, that she had a lot of lot going for her, and I think the chemistry between her and Kevin. Well, you know, I wouldn't say they became kind of friends or anything. They definitely had a chemistry on screen.
1: Mm-hmm. And it feels like there was a bit of improv, because, is it correct, like the scene where they are driving and he's, you know, quote-unquote, eating the bugs off the windshield, like that was him improving, yeah. wasn't it?
2: Yeah. yeah. And stuff like even the, the stuff in the uh, limousine, you know, they never, I think the script, the original script didn't have a limousine scene in it. And I went to Washington looking for locations and they sent this big stretch limo to pick me up. And uh, you know, being as an Aussie and feeling a little bit uncomfortable in the back of a limousine, I said okay to the driver if I ride up front with him. So I am mean, riding up front with the driver and I say to him, you know, so you know, tell us anybody ever get up to mischief in the back of your limousine? And he goes, Oh, and he starts to tell me the story about how it. It's the mirror organized and carries on. And anyway, that's sort of the, that was the beginning of the origins of that part of the script. And in the movie I tracked down the same guy at the top of the story and that's him driving the, the limo.
0: There you go. Um well, one thing I wanted to ask is about the the big twist at the end. Don't worry, everyone's uh, listening has seen the film. They know the the big spoiler. But um it's not in the original book. It's it's an edition for the film, which is I think it works. One thing I I like about it though is that you do sprinkle those breadcrumbs throughout.
2: Can I just say something before we show the film? I've never read the book. Big clock, or, or or seen the movie, so I don't know anything about the origins of this plot other than sure,
0: that's fine. No, 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 yeah. no. Um that's fine. I, mean, I I haven't read either. To be fair, okay, but <laughs> don't worry, you're in good company.
2: I just didn't want to say you know how I was influenced or in any way. I didn't even know about the, the origins of the of the big clock until after I actually shot the movie.
0: No, for sure, I didn't. I'd just from doing research, but the. What I liked, though, was the sprinkling of clues that if you go back and rewatch it, it is there. Like he's drinking uh, Stolich and I, I think the the Russian vodka and stuff like that. Was that stuff that was in the script or was that things that just came up on set about you leaving some clues in for the viewer? No,
2: no, no, they were in the script. They were in the script. I mean, this is my memory. of it. I mean, it's a long time ago now. My memory is that, that, that those plot points were in the original script. They weren't sort of thought up as we went along.
0: Well, It, it definitely works. Is there, a, you know, is there a, a trick for adding these clues in without making them too, like, over-the-top on screen?
2: Well, I mean, the challenge, of course, was was to, you know, not give away the end of the movie without, and yet keep, the, you know, have an integrity to the, to, the, to the story so that if you did watch it twice, you are like, oh, my God, yeah, why didn't I pick up on that?
1: And I was really curious to know about the performance of Will Patton which I think is absolutely no, incredible no. because, you know, the way the movie's set up, you would think like Gene Hackman is going to be the antagonist, but you really get the sense at a certain point that Will Patton assumes that role. And I would love to know just about the decision to cast him and then, you know, helping direct him t- to this just unbelievable performance.
2: Well, uh, the casting, was I didn't start with the casting. I think it was. Um, anyway, the casting person, Told me about this great actor who was on a play, was 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 performing on a play in a play in New York, in New York on Broadway, and so uh, she organised some seats for me to go and see you know, Will doing this play, and I was like right there in the front row, and I was you know exhausted. I was you know anyway, I fell asleep during the play. And I wake up and I see you know Will up there, and I was like holy shit, and Will's looking straight at me. I was like I had no options. He had to get the part. <laughs> no i mean he was a fantastic choice and he was a fantastic talent and i've had him in a he did did a piece in another movie of mine as
1: well right Uh, and i was really interested to know i mean in this movie you have kind of two ticking clocks going on you've got the photo that's slowly being developed as well as the gift list as we are waiting to find out if they can connect you know gene hackman's character to the crime and i would just love to know about working with the editors to make that all work because you've got two ticking clocks you've got all these, you know, little diversions involving action scenes and all that sort of thing. How do you essentially get this across in a way where the audience isn't going to get
2: lost? Um, well, you know, you obviously got to sort of plot out exactly where you're going with it and not sort of lose the pace of the piece and not be sort of repetitive or whatever. But I did have a really great editor, Neil Travis, who um, unfortunately is no longer with us. But Neil was a great editor, and I know um, I think yeah, after he edited No Way Out, he, uh, you did um, Dances with Wolves for Kevin. And, um, you know, a great editor can have a big impact on how a picture comes together and Neil was really as good as they come.
0: Well, I, I suppose, and I, I mean, I'm more or less out of questions for No Way Out, but now that you've gone back and revisited the film, looking at it as part of your spy works, are you, is there anything you go back and change about the film now? Or are you happy with it as a piece of work?
2: You no, know, I mean, you see a film again uh, that after so much time and you go, like, could I have shortened it or made it tighter or anything? And then, I mean, maybe the, there's a sequence, of, a storm sequence where Kevin rescues somebody on the deck of a ship that I, if I was cutting him again, I could probably cut it a bit tighter. But the rest of it are really hung together really well for me.
0: No, and you, and you struck gold with, with Costner. That, I mean, that was the exact moment for Kevin Costner. It was perfect. No, casting. It was.
2: And, and, you know, it was one of Gene's better movies too, I think. For sure, yeah. He had a lot of great movies in his repertoire.
1: When I saw the ending of the movie last night, it reminded me a lot of the ending of Three Days of the Condor, of sort of the guy who's going to be left essentially in the cold. Was that any influence, or is that just...
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, unfortunately the writer is no longer with us as well, you know, John Gallum, Bob Gallum, I'm sorry, Robert Gallum. I mean, I'm I'm sure Bob was aware of, you know, other movies that had those sort of, you know, types of endings. Mm-hmm. As a filmmaker, you know, you're always trying to throw twists in, on twists and, you know, the audience and, with thrillers. I mean, the challenge of making a good thriller is to be a, to keep challenging the audience so they think they know who they are, because there's only so many people in the story that can be the, the goody and the bad. And so the challenge of making a good thriller is to confuse the audience and have them thinking A is going to happen when B is going to happen so that they keep being surprised and involved and intrigued by the story. Um, so that's, you know, that's the challenge always, I think, of making it through, is trying to make it less than predictable and keep surprising the audience so they feel, you know, invested in trying to catch up with you as a filmmaker.
1: Have you gotten a sense just over the years of the legacy of No Way Out?
2: Well, only that I keep being asked by lots of, you know, <laughs> producers, you've got another story like No Way Out, or, oh, you know, we've tried to do a No Way Out story. I mean, obviously people are developing plotlines of, you know, No Way Out has been mentioned lots of times in the sort of story rooms where people try trying to put together thrills. Well,
1: I, w- I want to move into The Recruit, which is another very notable spy movie. And it's interesting that you have, you know, um, Kevin Costner in No Way Out a, you know prime to explode. And with The Recruit, you have Colin Farrell, who is in that huge boom early in his what? career where he was working constantly. I would love to know just Again, you're working with, like, an up-and-coming superstar, one of the best actors of his generation. What was it like working with Colin right out of the gate there?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, Colin was, you know, obviously just an incredible talent and energetic and enthusiastic, and he was sort of like, you know, Kevin was it when I worked with him the first time. You know, he was full of just enthusiasm and energy, and, you know, he was just a joy to work with, and he was a great, you know, Al Pacino, you know, and the two of them sort of fired off each other in a similar way to what... Um, hackman and and and, uh, kevin did One was the old Mm -hmm. you know the the, the experienced actor with an incredible history and repertoire and the other one was a young new kid on the block and i think they both you know both both lots of guys sort of fight off each other
1: yeah because i mean yeah it's like colin farrell up and coming then al pacino who's like at pure icon status at this point and like I would just love to know about yeah, you know, like finding the chemistry between the two of them. And you said like it was a real like back and forth that worked.
2: Well, I think you know, but, I mean, Colin has got a chemistry of his own. You know, I mean, everything he does has got a sort of a twinkle in his eye. And he's a completely irrelevant, irreverent sort of character in real life. You know, he made the, he was a the, the crew loved him, the other actors loved him, um, I loved him. You know, he would do anything to do it better. I, that he was never took it too seriously where he sort of was became a pain in the ass.
1: And now with The Recruit, I believe it was James Foley was attached to direct this one and then you came in and directed. I'm curious, where in the process did you come into the movie? Was it like locked down at that point or did, was there time to develop it?
2: Uh, I, uh, uh, I honestly don't know. I mean, I know James Foley was involved with it before I was, but I don't know the transition. Uh, right. I mean, I just remember being offered this movie to make and there was, a, I mean, obviously a lot of work got done on the script after I came on board. Okay. So I don't really have any knowledge of the history before I was part of it.
0: Well, that's. I mean, you were talking about the connection between um, Colin Farrell and Al Pacino and, and getting involved past the original director. Were the, was the cast already set by that point or did you still have a hand in, in casting the roles?
2: No, I, I, to be honest, I do not remember. I, I suspect I don't think Al was involved with it. I think Colin maybe was. Right. But, but I'd I know, i I'd be lying. I can't remember. You no, know, Al, Al must have not been involved because I remember going to New York and meeting with him and talking to him about the scripts obviously it series, about getting him involved in being in it. So I don't think he was involved prior to meeting, being involved.
1: Okay. And did you, like, had you had any sort of relationship with Al Pacino before getting him into the
2: movie? No, only that we knew each other just through sort of Hollywood knew each other. Right. I tried to get him in the movie I did earlier. Um, I did a movie called Cadillac Man, and I had had ambitions for getting um, uh, Al involved, but he uh, thought it was too much like some other work he'd done, so that didn't happen, but I remember meeting with him about that.
1: And when it came to, like, creating the world of the recruit, I think the farm material is very strong in this movie, and I would love to know, Sort of finding the line between, you know, research and invention um, in creating these set pieces.
2: Um, I know there was a, uh, I should have, I should have watched this film too. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the, I don't know if he's a producer or a writer, but he was connected to the CIA and had a, you know, he took me to the CIA and showed me around there. Um, so he obviously, this, this character, Chase, Chase Brandon.
1: Yeah, Brandon, yeah.
2: Um, he knew, he, you know, he, he was, I mean, when he showed up, there I mean, he was like, Roger, if you want me to show you around, I'm, I'll show you around. And I was like, you know, full of, you, know you, you meet lots of characters in Hollywood that say they know more and can get you into places that they can't. But anyway, I showed up at the CAA with Chase and Chase, and you know, everybody was like, hi, Chase, uh, good to see you, you know, at the front gate. And um obviously, you know, I mean, I didn't see much more than the front entrance way and some corridors, but he obviously knew his way around the place, and they knew him. And so, you know, the, the sort of the story of the farm was sold to me as though there, there, there was an element of truth to the sort of stories that were in the movie. Well,
0: um well, one thing it's worth pointing out between sort of No Way Out and The Recruit is you've done a bunch of different films in between that, you know, Cocktail, Species. Dante's Peak, which I'm going to get to in a minute. But just between those two spy films, they're very different films. Is there, what's the challenge like in moving from something like No Way Out to this? Is it a is it harder film to direct or easier in some ways?
2: Well, no, I think the challenge for me is always to find something different that's not a repeat of the last thing I've just done. I mean, the, the next movie I made after No Way Out was Cocktail. And, you know, very different sort of movies with different sort of um, expectations and different audience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for something that's a bit of a challenge and not going down the same road. You know, it's, you know I'm, i will like to be Groundhog Day, but same, same story again and again and again.
1: Definitely. And like, did, um, did, do you think No Way Out helped get you the job on The Recruit? Like, was that something that would have helped or completely irrelevant to getting you the Recruit?
2: Well, you know, I think I, what helped, I mean, what got me the job, I guess, was you know, I had a track record of making films that you know, got released and came out well and the audience liked them and they made some money. And, um, and uh, obviously No Way Out was a movie that was, you know, um, you know it was a bit of a sleeper at the time and sort of came, came up strong. And um, So, you know, it's a movie that people still talk about.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: And there are a lot of twists and turns throughout The Recruit, and I would like to know about, you know, you talked about, like, planning with No Way Out, um, but did this movie feel more complicated, because not only are you trying to get the audience through from a plot perspective, but also the central romantic relationship is also very, like, you know, twists and turns throughout, so, like, I'd like to know just how difficult it was to kind of track that beginning to end.
2: Well, I think, you know, I mean, Mitch Glazer, the writer, was, you know, on set, at least at the beginning of the shoot, I remember. And, you know, the, the I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the pleasure of making these sort of films is to get the twists and turns and try to keep one step ahead of the audience and keep surprising the audience and keep them involved and, you know, with the, just keep putting twists and turns in it.
1: And one of the, Notes I had about uh, the recruit when I was watching it that jumped out was um, there's a part where there's a very uh, specific James Bond reference and I've seen interviews that you at you know certain points um, had been you know having conversations with Eon about James Bond. I was just curious, do you? From what I'd seen, you weren't sure what movie it was. Do you remember what kind of era that was?
2: Uh, no, I don't.
1: No? Okay.
0: Oh yeah, well, fair enough. No, it's it's hard to remember. I imagine everyone was approached in in some way or form over the years from Beyond because they're always looking for the top directions if you especially look at the 90s around dante's peak sort of time you're working with brosnan i
2: mean i remember i remember talking to uh, to the you know the broccolis about uh, a bond is this what you're talking about yeah but uh my memory of it is that you know we couldn't come anywhere near close to a deal and so it never went anywhere
0: no it's, it's fair enough um well let's I wanted to talk about the next spy film, which is The November Man. Right. But I don't feel like we can talk about that properly without mentioning Dante's Peak first, because uh, I feel yeah. like one feeds into the other. Um, and I really want to pick the brain of a man who uh, dropped a rock through someone's head in a car and put an old lady in an acid lake, because it's a, it's a fascinating film to talk about. I, this was my introduction to you, uh, the first film of yours I ever saw. Uh, it must have been on home video, I think. I don't think I saw it in theaters. But I, I went back to it the other day, and I, I did not remember any of the stuff with like the rock or the lady oh, yeah. in the lake. And I'm, I'm just amazed that that got through a PG thirteen.
2: No, well, in fact, my kids, uh, as children, couldn't bear to watch it. It was just too terrifying.
0: Yeah, it, it's truly terrifying.
2: Don't like, no, no, no,
0: no, 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 make us
2: watch this. It's too scary. <laughs> but I want to watch it again. Um, you know, I started off life. I was going to be a geologist, and I, and I had a real passion about geology. I mean, the subject of geology, and you know, living in New Zealand where there were lots of volcanoes, and knowing quite a bit about volcanoes just from you know my studies as as a you know young student. So I was, you know, I was in, I was attracted to the project by its sort of uh, scientific basis, I guess.
0: Well, it's the—I mean—with the geology background, I was reading about this before. It's like the perfect film for you. It's—it's it's like your interests, and also it's a—it's going to be a big budget film. Like this is the zenith for you, really.
2: So it was challenging. It's challenging to make a sort of family, family film because it's a sort of thankless task, a bit because you're trying to make you know they save the dog and make sure the kids don't get killed. Um, but it was also It was also incredibly rewarding in that being able to make stuff on this enormous scale and do some of the things that we did in that film you know as a filmmaker it really was a super super big challenge to make it and of course there were no digital effects in those in those days i mean i think there are there's one sequence i think that has some digital lava in it but most of it all the stuff where they're driving through the lava and all that that's all real was there on screen looking exactly like it was
0: one thing that blew me away just doing my research, and I watched some behind-the-scenes videos, um, especially with, like, the, the car and the bridge being washed away, all done by miniature, which I didn't yeah, right know. Miniature.
2: Yeah. No, I don't. it was very convincing when you're watching it on the big screen.
0: Absolutely. But um, what was it like working with sort of scale miniatures and, and sort of getting that action, still keeping it believable at the same time?
2: Well, I think that was the challenge. I mean, there was one enormous challenge that I didn't wish I had, which was that there was another movie called Volcano made by Fox at the same time that was, you know, breathing down my neck and I had to get my film done before that came out because I wasn't going to be second for anybody. So at one stage there, towards the end of that production, I had had six film crews shooting 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I was literally living in the back of a Lincoln Town car and going from set to set to studio to, you know, (laughs) To get it done on time with a room full of editors and it was pretty crazy there at the end but it was you know some of that that miniature stuff was it was on an epic scale and i had a you know some really great people involved um dennis washington who'd been the production designer on the no way out that's where i met him Who was the production designer um you know there was some there was just lots of things that happened on that film like I remember when the town fell down, we had, I think, the most cameras that Panavision had ever entered to one show at the same time. It was over 20 cameras rolling on one shot, basically. Um, Yeah, it was epic filmmaking like I've never seen since.
1: Were you a fan of, like, those 70s disaster movies like, you know, Earthquake or Towering Inferno?
2: No, not really, you know, I mean, I, I guess more intimate, you know, stories on my sort of my own personal taste. In the movies like my life is adorable. Well, I, you you
0: say about like sleeping in your car and, and all these sets running at the same time. And yet you beat Volcano to the big screen and
1: <laughs>
2: you Yeah. Too right. And I wasn't gonna fucking come second after doing all that much work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's the thing. Like I we, you hear of films who they rush their production and you you get a subpar film. You cannot see the seams in this film. It is, it is one of the best disaster flicks I think uh, has ever been created. And you did it quicker than you were supposed to do and without sleeping, by the sounds of it.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I had some fantastic help. You know, first of all, the cast were fantastic, but I had a fantastic crew. Um, Andre Bakoviak was the DP. Um, you know, Dennis Washington was the t- production designer. I mean, those two people... They just had such an enormous influence on how the movie came together, their enthusiasm and their help and their um, talents. You know, they they both took an enormous load off, my, off me. So it was always, I, ne- I never felt like I was trying to carry the stone up the hill on my own.
0: No, for sure, for sure. Now, one question I had about Dante's Peak, and you mentioned the geology of it all in your background. Was there ever a, an issue of trying to separate the actual science from, What is a disaster flick, or or is it actually quite factual when you boil it down to the science?
2: Well, it is quite factual. I mean, one of the first things I did was, you know, rent a helicopter and fly into Mount St Helens and look at the scale of what had happened with Mount St Helens. And I thought I had a clue what it was like before I went there, but to see it firsthand, to fly into the crater of Mount St Helens and then to see just thousands of acres of trees just laid, I mean, giant redwoods just ripped out out of the ground, lakes covered in logs still 20 years later I mean it was the scale of, the, of what happened in Mount St. Helens just made me realise what the potential of the film was.
0: No for sure I, I think you capture it well now, one of the main reasons I brought this film up and I'm sure you'll know is because of its leading man Mr. Pierce Brosnan yeah. now um, what was the casting like for the film did you have your eye on, on Brosnan?
2: Well, we actually knew it. Pierce and I actually knew each other we, we knew each other through Brian Brown right. who was also my brian brown who was in cocktail um and so i sort of was friends with with pierce before we worked together
1: okay
0: so did you just have him in mind for the script and and he read for the role and that was it
2: i don't remember how the transition came from him being in the film but um you know we did we were friends before we worked together okay and we're still friends
0: no uh i was just reading an interview with him the other day recently you mentioned your name so that was uh works out well but okay so you knew him already and so he there we go he works to the role but what was it like just having him on set because he'd just come off of golden eye right. and i think immediately after the shooting this he goes to shoot the next bond film tomorrow Never dies right. um you know how, how he this is again brosnan at the sort of height of his power you just had cosner before as well what was it like working with him on set
2: Well, we were, you know, we were working up in Idaho and we we just had a fucking good time. You know, we enjoyed ourselves, we enjoyed ourselves on the weekends and we had time off. It was, you know, I think, you know, making that film was one of the more enjoyable experiences of my whole Hollywood career.
1: I'm curious because one thing I really noticed over the course of your career is you worked with a lot of the big movie stars of that time. What do you get working with like some of these big iconic movie stars that you don't necessarily get on other films?
2: Um, well, I think, you know, if you can get movie stars in your movies, you, you know, people, the audience and the, the critics and the money all take, it, that, you know, take the project more seriously. I mean, I think that's what, you know, it's not like there are no good actors out there unless you get a superstar, but it does if you, I mean, like when I was making um, The World's Fastest you, to get Tony, Tony Hopkins on to say being in the film, made that film happen. Without Tony, I wouldn't have had a shit show being in film off the ground.
0: I don't think I can let uh, Dante's peak go past without mentioning Linda Hamilton as well, which I think she does a fantastic job. No, of. No, she,
2: she was such a sweetie. I mean, she really is. Yeah. I mean, and I think you sort of know how people are when you work with them, you know. She, I never once remember her doing anything other than being completely, you know, help the kids get through the day. Um, make sure, you know, she couldn't do enough for the movie or for, for the other characters in the film or the story or she just really was just a sweetie to work
0: with. Well, before we drift on over to the November man, and you said it's one of the best experiences you had making a film in your yeah. career, just looking back on the film now, either it could be a scene from the finished project or, or a scene or, or a moment from when you were shooting it. What's your fondest memory of the film
2: of of done Pi yeah uh, there was a day that uh, well, it's not the fondest memory, but it's the, most, it's the strongest memory I had. Sure. We had this whole town rigged. Um, Dennis Washington had built the whole town so that it was built around this town of Wallace, Idaho. And it was a town that was half sort of derelict, half it was there and half wasn't. So wherever there were buildings missing, he filled in with sets. And then the whole town was going to have, there was going to be one take as, as Pierce was going to drive the vehicle through the town and the town was going to fall down around it from the earthquakes. And uh, the whole, you know, we had uh, 20 cameras all lined up ready to roll. We had, you know, 20 film crews. We had, we had had Pierce, you know, in the car and Linda ready to roll. And we had the special effects guy who was going around and checking all of the, you know, explosives to make sure that everything was time to come down. And I'm there, ready, and everything's ready to go. But we're just doing the last minute checks on everything. And I look across and I see the special effects guy. The two wires and he put them onto the battery that makes the, all the explosives go. And I see him go touch the wires. I, I still remember the sparks as the whole town starts to blow up. And nobody said roll the cameras or anything. Every camera crew assumed that they hadn't heard roll cameras or action. Pierce assumed he hadn't heard action, and everybody rolled their cameras. And Pierce took off and was trying to catch up to what was happening, and that we got the shot.
0: Oh, that was that was a shot.
2: That was it. There was never roller camera or action. <laughs> oh, man. Is there a sequence in a Peter Sellers movie or something like that? The producers or something. There's a sequence where somebody, where a special effects guy blows up a bridge and they're not ready when you are know, so or something.
0: Well, you, you pulled it off. It, it, I, I'm glad I revisited it for this. Uh, it, it's, it's still up there with one of my favourite 90s films, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks. Um but let's drift on over to your other Pierce Brosnan film, which also has more connections like Will Patton, which is The November Man. Right. So what brought you... Now, I, I've seen different bits of information about this, so you, maybe you can clarify if you can re- recall. Yeah. I know Pierce Brosnan and his production company, Irish Dreamtime, had the rights to the story.
2: Right. He was involved in the producing with, um, with Beau Maurice St. Clair.
0: That's right, yeah.
2: Marie was a big good. I mean, the three of we were we knew each other socially. Bo-Marie and uh, Lloyd Phillips were like really really great friends of mine. Unfortunately, both have passed away now. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it, it was their idea to get me involved.
0: Okay, that was that was the question. basically. yeah. So they brought you in, basically.
2: Shriram das, das, the Indian um, film producer too. He was in. He was. Um, you know, part of the equation as well.
0: Okay. And at that point, was Pierce cast as the lead? Because I've heard mixed stories on who was the lead. No,
2: I only ever knew of the, of the, the lead was him. Okay. I
0: I I can refute the information on IMDB then, because it was never going to be... I, I, I'd I heard it was Daniel Craig for a little while.
2: No, never. they may have tried to get Daniel, but it was before I was ever involved. Okay.
0: That makes sense. But, you know, this is a return to the spy world for you after The Recruit and a return to the spy world for Pierce Brosnan after yeah. you know, Die Another Day, uh, well, at least for Bond anyway. But, you know, was there a sense of trepidation from him trying to get back into that role, or was he gung-ho?
2: I think he was gung-ho. You know, it was originally the film was, I think, set in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, Germany was just impossible financially to make it happen there. And uh, the idea of coming up with going moving to Serbia uh, appealed to me because Serbia felt like it was off the beaten track a bit, and you know the sort of history of Serbia and recent history of Serbia seemed to, you know to make it challenging to be, want to make a film there. So, um, so we rewrote the script. I mean, a big rewrite to make it Serbian and not Germany, um, and that's how it came to be Serbia.
0: Well, it certainly gives it that European feel that I think yeah. works as well. That, that does work for the film. The other thing about I find interesting about casting is firstly, you've got Will Patton coming back after yeah. No Way Out. So Was that like a little nod to your previous spy work by having him come back?
2: I just say, that, you know, you work with great actors and so you're always looking for a place to bring them back if you can.
0: No, nope, makes sense to me. Uh, and he's great in both films and many others. The other one was Olga Kalienko who yeah. had previously starred in Quantum of Solace. So we have a, another Bond connection there. Right, yeah. uh, um, but what was, like, casting her in the role? Because I think she's terrific in this film.
2: Yeah, no, no, she's a real talent. I mean, I, I don't remember. I mean, obviously, you know, Pierce knew her. Mm. I, mean, she would, I mean, no casting ever gets comes and like, this is who's going to be in your film. It's like, what about Olga? I think maybe we could get her to be interested in her. She was. I mean, she's a, she's a fantastic talent.
0: No, no. Well, it, it totally works. But so I guess then my first question about just making this film is, what was it like to work with Pierce again?
2: Well, once again, you know, Pierce and I are friends, and so you know, it was it was it was great on the weekends as well as you know when we were shooting. I mean, Pierce unfortunately was going through a personal family tragedy in the middle of it all; his stepdaughter died. So that was challenging for Pierce, you know. And then you know, if it's challenging for the lead actor, it obviously gets, comes down. To the other people, and you know it was a limited budget film that didn't have any wiggle room in terms of you know schedule or anything, so it was you know we we had to work hard
0: no i I saw it. it's a very successful film, and I think one thing it does really well is it and it actually something calls back to no way out in a way. you manage to weave several like twists in it without it feeling like it's overburdening the audience, which a lot of spy films can do. they get very twisty for the sake of being twisty, yeah, but this film nails the landing in my opinion oh, um, Good. And what's it like just juggling that sort of the different plots? Because obviously, you've got Olga's character it turns out to be the person they're looking for later on in the film and sort of and dealing with those plot points and, and making it work.
2: Well, I guess that's, that's the fun of making those sort of films. And that's what I, you know, if, ever, if I've got a talent, it's, you know, keeping the, those suspense balls in the air and not getting confused myself about what story I'm trying to tell.
0: No, for sure. Um, and is there, I mean, is, this is your most recent of the the spy films you've done. Is this, is there a moment or a scene particularly that stands out to you, something you're quite proud of?
2: Oh, God, what is it? I think the scene where, you know, Pierce cuts her leg. hmm Because it was a very sort of, you know, it, it was a tough scene to sort of make work. Um, it required, obviously, some great acting from the, you know, from everybody. Um, there was that potential that, it would be, that the Pierce character doing this would sort of we'd lose sympathy and interest in him as a character. So it was a challenging scene to do, and I think it works. You know, I mean, I think it's a very powerful, strong scene. Yeah,
0: because i would never seen... I mean, I, I can't confess to have seen all of Pierce's films, but I'd never seen him go that way before.
2: No, I mean, it's pretty good. In, did you, have you ever seen The Tower of Panama?
0: It's on, it's on my list of films to watch. And I think Cam has seen it, yeah.
2: Uh, you might be disappointed. It's one of John Bourne's better films. I mean, he's not not better films, though he's not good. It's great filmmaking. It's a good film.
0: But yeah, it definitely surprised me seeing Pierce going that way, and I think the scene really works well. So that's a great choice. There was a moment I wanted to pick your brain about, and that is also a connection to Dante's Peak, which is your other Pierce Brosnan film in that sense. Uh at the start of the film of Dante's Peak, there's his his love interest, I believe, or fiance gets struck by a bit of the crater like falling yeah. through the car. Yeah. And then in the November Man, uh Pierce Brosnan's love interest is shot whilst driving with him in a car. Is that was that like an intentional nod or was that just scripting that was just serendipitous? No.
2: You're the first person in my suffering that's even Seen the connection between the two. <laughs> I, never, I personally had never thought about that, and I guess you know, in, in terms of storytelling, you know, if you put the character under a sort of a, a stress, you know, you, you you answer the questions of why are you romantically available. You're a wounded, you know, you're a, a little bit wounded, and so you're vulnerable. Um, you've got some sympathy from the audience because you've had this tragic event in your life, and you know, all you need is a good woman to sort of bring you out of your depression. So there's, it ticks all those boxes.
0: No, it absolutely works. And uh, it, it's one we're looking forward to tackling on the show down the road. But uh, it, it was great to see Pierce Brosnan back in the role as a spy
1: again. And I think it was uh, very well done.
2: No, I'm good. Well, thank you very much.
1: Well, I mean, you've done three spy films that all have a very strong sense of identity. Is that something you would look at doing again? Or do you feel like, you know, other, other projects, you don't want to do that again?
2: Oh, no, I... I love spy films, you know, because they, they tick a lot of boxes in terms of what you're trying to do. You know, trying to keep the audience interested, you, 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 um, you've got a lot to drive it. And it's where a lot of spy films fall short, they get too complicated and you lose interest in them. And for me, you know, the challenge of making it, keeping the audience interested is, is what makes the, is the fun of doing it. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all
0: agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call
1: for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon. Home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got
0: in our crosshairs this month?
1: Yes, we are tackling the 2001 video game adaptation Lara Croft Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie and Daniel Craig. Make sure to hit start on this one, folks.
0: And if that sounds delicious then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx
1: just one other project i just want to touch on briefly was the movie species which was i mean that was an incredibly fun movie i remember seeing that you know as a teenager and it's one that I think a lot of maybe critics weren't the kindest to, but it's had a bit of a reputation as a very notable cult film of the decade um, that it came out. And I would like to know just, when you're essentially taking kind of like a B-movie premise and elevating it, you know, when you, what drew you to the project, I suppose, first of all?
2: My, ma- my agent at CAA became a, ran, took over running MGM. And if I'm really honest, that's how I came to be involved in it. You know, Right, Marcus said, "Hey, Roger, you know I've got this great show that I think you'd be perfect for," and I was like, "Oh, a horror movie?" He says, "Yeah, yeah, but you'll be able to get a great cast, and we'll make a fantastic movie, and we'll be right behind you. Come on, do this film for me." And he was right. You know, we managed to get a really A cast. You know, with Ken, with uh, you know, just the people that we got involved, Mike Madsen and Mark Helgenberger and Ben Kingsley, and you know, we we managed to get some. You know. We just we just put, put such a good cast together, you know. I I, I just felt like that we we're going to make an entertaining film here. And and um, Natasha Henstridge, of course, gets an enormous pat on the back because you know she was this young, nineteen-year-old actress who'd never been in a film before. That I, uh, you know, taking your clothes off. for now is a completely thankless task. But even then, it wasn't a thing. You know, a lot of people. Hard to take, you know, people actors seriously if they're prepared to be Megan, and she was, and she did a fantastic job, and people still love her work.
1: Yeah, like that became an iconic performance within, you know, the genre, and
2: and of course, getting HR Giger involved, you know, he gave it another sort of depth. You know, his association with the Alien.
1: Yeah, uh, the yeah, the HR Geiger design was really it became. Definitely iconic as well. What goes into um, creating like a, a kind of a monster design that's going to last? Because that one has.
2: No, no. I mean, I think you know the. I mean, um, Frank Mancuso Jr. I mean, everybody wanted. I, I, don't, I don't. remember how Giga became involved, but you know, everybody thought it was a great idea as he'd done such sort of you know crazy stuff for Alien that was so successful, and his own personal interest was sort of this sort of hyper sort of monster, alien, sort of um, sexy sort of stuff. He was the perfect person to, to do the, you know, the models. I remember going to his house in Switzerland and it was like, oh my God. I've got a video somewhere that I shot of him showing me around his house. It's pretty amazing.
0: It feels like it could be a nightmare factory, that house, I have to say. Like it, uh, yeah, very yeah. unsettling, I imagine.
2: <laughs> no, no, it was more than unsettling.
1: Did the designs vary wildly before you settled on the finished sill design, or was it... Well,
2: the, the challenge, of course, was how to do it. Because, you know, it was the early days of... Um, well, I mean, one of the reasons that I was interested in doing the film was because it was the early days of um, motion capture. Mm-hmm. And I imagined that we were going to do quite a bit of motion capture work to make this character, you know. But the truth was, once we tried to make the, the monster stick to, to the hard surfaces, it became very tricky, and I was less than convinced and, So I resorted to, you know, everything's got to be done for real because, you know, the the digital work's just not going to probably be good enough. So there's stuff like when, you know, where the the monster's got him, got the guy guy in the hot tub and it's the actor with this monster glued to his back, thrashing around as though the monster's trying to drown him, but in fact it's him being, he's he's motivating the monster because the monster's, you know, attached to him. And then running some of the action backwards and just to make it look weird and odd and, <laughs> you know, just coming out with you know, old, old-fashioned movie tricks to make stuff look convincing.
1: Now, there was a sequel to Species. Did you ever consider...
2: There's been six, Somebody said there's been six. I've never seen one of them, but have never offered seen one of them. They still claim that Species has <laughs> is is not broken even yet.
1: <laughs> yeah, like Species 2 was, like, theatrical, and the rest all went straight to video, but were you ever approached about directing Species 2? Uh, nothing to do with anything. No, it sounds like you're probably best not
0: to be involved, judging by uh, Camp's reaction there. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. You made the wise call. Yeah. Um. Wait, well, yeah, I'm. We'll start to sort of wrap up on the questions, but you know, one thing I, looking at your filmography, I, I'm sort of struck by is the variety of the films that you've tackled, from science fiction to spy films, which is why we're here. What is it that uh, interests you in, in telling these sorts of stories and changing from sort of a different genres all the time? Because, it, you know, is it about keeping it fresh? What's the thing that keeps it going for you?
2: Well, you know, if I look at what I've done in sort of personal development right now, I've got a, a, a I mean, and now streaming TV is sort of where, where the future lies. There's not mm-hmm. the sort of films that I've been making, you know, theatricals less interested in them than, than no streaming options. Um, you know, I've got a thing about uh, a pre-war race car driver called Richard Seaman who rose, who drove for Mercedes and it's a sort of pre-war rise of fascism against the, the sort of ambiguity of, you know, if you're a, he, he was English and the race drove for Mercedes, so, you know, right up until 1938. So it's a sort of pre-war thriller, uh, drama, political story. Uh, I've got a, uh, I guess it's sort of a comedy about um, genetic, genetic testing, you know, and identifying who you, who, who you are through your genetic DNA. Uh, another one that's sort of set in Venice, just a multi layered story, sort of like Crash, one of those sort of stories that, uh, stories intersecting other stories. Writing is thrilled in the outback of Australia.
0: But even from those three that you've got um, coming up, again, A variety of sort of genres there if you had to sort of maybe pick uh, is there a favorite you like doing when it comes to directing a a type of story you love telling
2: no i just love (laughs) working
0: that's fair that's fair well then i suppose one question we like to ask especially when we have directors and writers on the show is there a film of things that you've made that maybe isn't like the most known it's not the Dante's peak it's not the species but one that you're really proud of that you could say hey check out if you want to see something else that you'd enjoy
2: well you know the the, the one that got me to Hollywood was a movie called Smash Palace, and because it was you know a small art house film in Europe in uh, all over the world you know it's really only known by sort of film aficionados and I think that still stands up quite well Smash Palace. they made that in 1981 okay and uh, The World's Fastest Indian, which is another project that I did. You know, people assume because it's about motorbikes that it's not for them, but it's, it's less about motorbikes and more about just what does one do with one's life.
0: Okay. Two excellent choices. They're great.
2: Um, there was a film called Marie that sort of came and went because of the studio had changed called uh, Marie with Sissy Spacek and Morgan Freeman that I think stands up well. Well,
0: there you get a smorgasbord of films to check out. There you go. Perfect.
2: Yeah. Again,
0: again, totally different.
2: Yeah.
0: Um. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question. You've got your three spy films, okay, and you've got three leads. If you put them in a fight, who's winning? Is it Kevin Costner? Is it Pierce Brosnan? Or is it Colin Farrell?
2: I think they all give each other a bit of a <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's the political answer right there, and I love it. <laughs> um. But of those three, you know, obviously you watched No Way Out again today. Is there a particular favourite one that you hold near and dear?
2: Well, no. I mean, all of those guys are very strong. You know, talented actors that have done fantastic work in their lives. You I know, mean, I saw watch Colin Farrell in uh... something like that, in Bruges. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah, good film. Oh, yeah, fantastic yeah, that film. He's incredible.
2: You know, Pierce. I just happened to watch the Tower the of Panama the other night again. You know, he's great in that film. Kevin's always good
0: Could you pick one of your spy films as, as a particular favourite?
2: Uh, they're all, you know, the, the process of doing them all was so different. They're hard to compare. I mean, obviously No Way Out meant a lot to me because, of, you know, it was, it was you know, I just arrived in Hollywood and it was the first time I'd done a thriller. And um, so, you know, it was good to come out on top on that show.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably it's the one I would tend to lean towards. If One thing that we didn't ask you with a No Way Out at the top, though, uh, it's probably best that you bring it up now. What's your favourite moment from that
2: film? No Way Out. I've just watched it. Now you're on the spot. I think, I think the stuff with George Zanza. Yeah, George Zanza, the guy in the wheelchair.
1: He's great. He's great, Absolutely fantastic. You
2: know, I love the interaction between those two. and George was such a lovely find. You, know, you really did believe that he you know, lived in that wheelchair. Um, you feel bad when he gets killed in the gymnasium. Um, so that sequence there, where you know Kevin's confessing to George that um, you know he's the guy they're looking for, and I felt that was strong. And then there's some great scenes. Some of the stuff between him and, and uh, of course between him and uh, Sean Young is really great. No, for sure. I like I like the opening actually when they're sort of you know sizing each other up at the at the inaugural you know, party.
1: Yeah, and I have to really compliment you on staging that party sequence because you introduce all of your major characters for the most part in that party sequence and it really is effective.
2: Yeah. Well,
0: final question to ask you then. Um, This has been asked to everyone from John Glenn to Ross and Marshall Ferber. The the question we have to ask is we talk about spy movies every week. What is your favorite spy movie, Roger?
2: And you're not allowed to pick your own, of course. <laughs> some some
0: have, to be fair, which I think is a bit cheeky, but I understand why they do it. i
2: trying to think. I think it's called the Thirty Nine Steps. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Hitchcock one. Yeah, I remember it, loving that film.
0: Is that the Hitchcock one, or is that the one from the fifties?
2: Um,
0: is it black and white?
2: It's in black and white. Yeah,
0: the Hitchcock yeah. one. That's a terrific film. Excellent choice. Um, and you know, we briefly mentioned James Bond. Obviously, you've worked with Pierce a couple of times. Are you, are you a fan of the the Bond
2: films? I am. I mean, I sort of regretted that I didn't get a chance to do a Bond film. My dad was just—he loved James Bond. You know, I mean, he just—if if he could have, if I could have told my dad I was doing the James Bond film, he'd still be alive. Hmm.
0: It's it's a shame you can't recall when like when about that conversation took place because I think me and Cam would uh, try and figure out now which film you might have directed. <laughs> We'll, we'll try and piece that together. But um, is any particular James Bond films, uh, uh, favourites for you?
2: Well, I was, a, you know, I was a big fan of Pierce, maybe just because I know Pierce well and I think he was, you know, I think, yeah, Pierce was probably my favourite because he has that, you know, Daniel Craig just didn't quite seem to have the, the same um, suave sort of quality that Je- that Pierce has. I, I thought Pierce was fantastic in James Bond.
0: Yeah, no argument. You'll get no argument. Yeah, you'll no no. He's the ma- he's the reason. But
2: every one but, but of them created. Every everyone, yeah, Sean Connery, I mean, they all created such strong. um You know, they, they everyone took over the character and
0: it became them. No, uh, for sure. I mean, I I would have wanted more Pierce Brosnan films if I could have had it, but you know that that's that's how history turned out. um well, I think all I was left to say, Roger, is firstly, thank you for, you know, the, the Roger Donaldson trilogy of spy films that we have now. They're not very well connected Thanks to each you. other, but I, I, in my head, I can connect them.
2: Because there are movies like 13 Days that sort of, it's not exactly a spy film, but it's in the world of sort of international politics and trying to keep track of what's going on internationally.
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: So I wouldn't call it a spy film. I sort of put it in that sort of camp of, you know, politics and, you know international Machiavellian goings
0: on. Well, they can be connected, th- those films. Uh, well, maybe we'll have to have a little dive into it and see what we can find. But, um, uh, you know, is is there potentially one day a, a fourth spy film making it a quadrilogy of Roger Donaldson films?
2: There's always a possibility.
0: <laughs> well, I, I think it's a beautiful note to... Actually I, I have
2: one, uh, actually, I have one that I'm in the middle of writing called Mole Hunter. So I guess that's going to be a spy, spy film. There you go. Oh.
0: Uh, who can we cast from your previous films in it I, I, want, I, want, a cut, I want a connective tissue so I can, I can link it together uh-huh. um, yeah. but that's a beautiful way to end the chat I, I think uh, Roger I want to thank you for taking the time for breaking down your spy films with us we've enjoyed watching them and talking about them over the last few years and it's great to finally speak to you about your contributions to spy films so Roger Donaldson thank you very much for joining us on the show
2: thank you so much guys much appreciated your interest and great to talk to you And we're
0: back from our chat with Mr. Roger Donaldson. I want to thank him once again for taking the time to speak to us for just short of an hour about not only this week's film, The Recruit, but No Way Out, November Man, and many other
1: hit films I'm sure you're all familiar with. But Cam, how was that for you? Well, Scott, this was actually really exciting because we've talked to a lot of writers, a lot of directors, but can you think of many times we've talked to someone who has made two movies we've covered on the show like usually we're looking for insight into something like you know the avengers you referenced earlier or something but this was a case where roger donaldson has directed two movies that we've covered on the show so just from like no way out going into the recruit i had a lot of questions that those movies raised that i was happy he was able to give some insight on yeah absolutely it's um it's interesting
0: as well because and this is not by choice but we're actually going through his filmography in like a, a chronology sense you know we've done no way out about a year later we did the recruit i guess in about a year's time we're gonna tackle the november man that would seem to be the trend yeah yeah are we gonna oh we have to tackle it in november right oh you have to don't you yeah that that makes perfect well okay 2023 november mark your calendars folks the november man returns um but yeah it as, as we mentioned, Jeremiah Chechik is a good starting off point. But yeah, we've spoken to like John Glenn, who's done five Bond films. So yes, there is that. But these f- spy films are all very different.
1: Yeah, well, that that's a good point about John Glenn. But that's within like kind of one body of work. Whereas um, with Donaldson, it's like two very different spy vehicles, completely different stars, working with different studios. So like in terms of just like having two projects that are kind of For us, interest points is is a rarity, and I was really excited to have him on to talk about them.
0: Well, yeah, I think one thing that Roger was clearly proud of is the fact that he got to work with some of these actors that were literally just breaking out at the time. You look at Kevin Costner in No Way Out. Uh, I mean, Pierce Brosnan had already done like Remington Steel, Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, and Dante's Peak. But you look at, um, say, Colin Farrell, which is really that his rise was in the early noughties. And, and he's working up against Al Pacino. And I'd never drawn that distinction that he did, actually, about you know, Al Pacino and Colin Farrell up against you know Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman as this like veteran actor against, like, well, not really a newbie, but someone who's really breaking out. I'd never really tied those two things together, which I think was quite a, a nice sort of through line through his career in spy movies. But I, I think overall, the, the thing I... I found it fascinating was he was just wandering from film to film really. He was looking for a different challenge every time and just sort of wandered into the territory of another spy film. But you know, there is a gap of 16 years between those two films.
1: It's interesting that he's drawn to these kind of spy projects that are very twist based. A lot of like elements that are kind of piling up but also like a kind of real world almost procedural element to the storytelling and that, you know, obviously no way out is really giving you this inside baseball look at sort of intelligence through the Kevin Costner character. And the recruit is doing that as well with Colin Farrell entering into CIA training and then ultimately kind of a CIA operation or question mark. Um, So I think it's really interesting that like these types of stories draw him in. And I haven't seen the November man yet. You have, Scott. But does that tie closely to that one as well? It does,
0: and, and the other through line I think that sort of holds up through all of them, and also kind of Dante's peak as well, is there's definitely a sense of like impending doom mm-hmm. that really ties them all together. I don't know if you could say it happens to necessarily in Cocktail, but looking at, at uh, some of Roger's films, especially the spy ones, uh, I know Weber Man* is one that stands out to me as well, is it really feels like the walls are closing in on everyone towards the end of the film. Definitely. Uh, and And it manages to sort of do that without feeling too heavy on the viewer, and much like you know weaving all those spy plots together, it's not also too confusing for the viewer. Something like a funeral in Berlin, I would always go back to as a touchstone for that. And so I think it's credit to him for being able to balance keeping that thriller mystery aspect going throughout, but at the same time making it approachable because these are these are meant as mainstream films. These aren't you know pitched as direct-to-streaming films that are only for a small
1: audience. Well, that was something about both um, No Way Out and The Recruit that jumped out at me, was these movies are um, very complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. There are shifting loyalties among the characters. And somehow he makes this all very digestible for a mainstream audience. It's a sort of thing that could easily be too complicated. Or, with you know, a rewrite and a different vision, would be something maybe more like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy type of storytelling where it's for a specific audience but it's not necessarily going to draw in you know four thousand theaters worth of people on an opening weekend like the movies he makes are very much big screen mainstream entertainments that still deliver those sorts of spy thrills yeah which
0: that's not something everyone can do That, that takes a certain skill to take something that could be seen as quite intricate quite cold quite unapproachable and making it so a general audience so because the way I always look at films especially spy films in my head when I'm doing like writing my reviews is what would my mum think of this film right and if she's confused then the average audience goer is confused because she's not great at paying attention but she'll pay attention to a film but if it gets too much she'll just detach and i can't say about any of you know the recruit november man or no way out that they are so up
1: their own butts that they push the viewer away. No, and you really understand that no way out is a mainstream popular movie when you see it being spoofed in Hot Shots Part Deux. In the limo, you know, love scene is basically brought over to Hot Shots, the second movie, and pretty much replicated and then completely spoofed. Um, that doesn't happen if it's a little more art house or a little more cerebral. It's very clear that when the makers of Hot Shots were looking at movies for inspiration. That's a mainstream No Way Out was a mainstream movie that they could draw on and you know I revisited No Way Out uh, the night before we did the interview which I think we acknowledge in the interview as well. But like um I had a great time rewatching this movie. I think this might be one of my favorite sort of mainstream Hollywood uh, spy films that we've covered especially of this era. I think of the 80s stuff it's it's near the top for me. It's also just a bit of a sleeper film like it's it's if people
0: talk about you know, underrated films, which is a very overused word, but underrated films, in terms of the spy world, No Way Out is definitely up on that list. Oh, definitely, yeah. And just a couple of things I wanted to touch on with uh, Roger's connection with Pierce. I didn't know they were friends prior to uh, Dante's Speaker. I always that was they met filming that and then eventually worked together again on The November Man. But nice to know they were friends before. Um, It sounds like they had a really great time working on that film. I mean, Roger got very impassioned talking about that going head-to-head with Volcano, which I think is a fascinating story in Hollywood anyway, because you'd think most of the time a film studio finds out the other film studio is doing a film just like theirs, and they'll either try and change it or
1: they'll bump it to some other time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that happens every now and again. We had the dueling comet movies in Deep Impact and Armageddon in '98. Or there was the two Snow White movies in Snow White and the Huntsman and Mirror Mirror that came out, you know, a handful of years ago. It's one of these things that definitely happens. And um, I will say that, like, you know, Dante's Peak and Volcano, I very, very much remember when these two movies were coming out. I did see uh, Dante's Peak in theaters. I did not see Volcano in theaters. And this is not blowing smoke at all to say this. Dante's Peak is way better than Volcano. Was that a pun? You know what? It wasn't in conception, but I'm going to stand that yes, it was a pun that I intended this entire time because it's brilliant. But no, like, uh, yeah, I'm not just saying that because we interviewed the director of the film. Genuinely, Dante's Peak is the better volcano film and probably the best volcano disaster movie to date. Um, I don't think we have that many, so I think that's a pretty easy call. Yeah, I don't want to go on about Dante's Peak too much, but you know,
0: it's it was interesting because I definitely watched it on home video in the nineties. Probably a rental with the family. I wouldn't have been old enough to see it in theaters. Uh, I remember bits of Bob's room, but from rewatching it the other day before this interview, I was struck by just a sense of like I don't want to say violence, because it's not it's not a violent film, but it is like brutal or intense in its execution. Intense, yeah, like seeing the grandmother boiling alive in the lake that's turning to acid. I'd forgotten that happened. I'll never forget that happened. <laughs> Nor will I now. That The shrieks that she's making in that lake as she's being dragged out. Piercing, if you'll pardon that pun. Oh, wow. Um, and speaking of piercing, we also spoke about The November Man as well. So it, it's interesting that we're speaking about a film we haven't covered yet. So that's why only I watched it and you're remaining sort of fresh to the film for when we cover it in November. Um, but yeah, like continuing his adventures with Pierce Brosnan, Pierce coming back to the role of a spy after, you know, Bond and a couple of other films as well. And it seems like he... I, I would have got the idea that there was, like, some reservations on Pierce's part, but it seems like from Roger that he was very gung-ho just to to do it. He had a story he wanted to tell, because obviously his company had bought the rights to the story of The November Man from the book it was based off of. So um, it's just nice to hear that, that Pierce was happy to go back into it. And it's interesting now, you know, at the time of recording, and uh, you know, a little bit of inside baseball here, this was recorded in 2022, and we're walking around seeing posters of, of Black Adam everywhere, and Pierce Brosnan's face is plastered over them. He's obviously a, a key part of the film. I'm not sure I'll go and see it, but um, you know, even now, Pierce Brosnan's still a leading man, so one can hope he might have one last spy movie in him.
1: Oh, I don't think it's out of the question. Uh, I think it could easily happen because Pierce Brosnan seems to understand what at least an element of his appeal is because you know you go back to Remington Steele and then Bond he gets that people like seeing him play these sorts of uh, sorts of characters and he also seems like someone who as he gets older is interested in exploring the darker aspects of that life as I mean I haven't seen November Man but uh, Taylor of Panama very much delved into and I could see you know like a uh you know, 60s or 70s Brosnan deciding that he wants to do a spy film about the end of a spy's career. I could see that for sure.
0: And I'd totally turn up for that too. And yeah, you talk about the darkness of the character. That's definitely in November Man in a scene that I spoke about with Roger that I'm sure those who have seen the film will know exactly the scene we were talking about. And, um, you know, obviously, I thought that would be quite the challenge for him. I'd never I haven't seen The Tailor of Panama, so I can't compare and contrast. But I'd never seen that side of Brosnan before. So it was nice to talk to Roger about sort of coaching him and directing him through that. Obviously, Pierce was going through some personal issues at the time. Uh, as well as making this film. But, I, I, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of The November Man, so I'm glad I got to speak to Roger about it. But Cam, do you have any final notes
1: on that you want to discuss? Yeah, it was just fun to talk to him about Species, a movie that was a big hit with my friends and I back in the 90s, and I've seen it since. And it does hold up as, like, one of those really memorable kind of sci-fi B-movies of the time. And... You know, Natasha Henstridge became, like, an icon out of that movie, and it was interesting to hear him talk about, you know, not just her, but the entire cast of that movie, which when you look at that cast now, it's pretty unbelievable, and while he's a director who typically worked with a lot of big movie stars on his films, whether it was Kevin Costner or Tom Cruise, Brosnan, it was interesting to see him work with more of a ensemble of character actors on Species, and I think it really worked, and also just the vision of him going to hr geiger's house was incredible
0: yeah apparently it's it's worse than a nightmare in there that was the line so uh, mm-hmm. i i don't want to see inside that house now i've never seen species but uh your 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 impassioned discussion with roger is is pushing me to do so
1: yeah i mean it's a fun movie for sure um yeah but don't watch species too uh, yeah that that's that's not roger
0: approved as we learned from the discussion that's right But there you go, folks. That was our chat with Roger himself. I hope you gleaned some information about either The Recruit, No Way Out, November Man, Dante's Peak, or any other number of films that we discussed in the interview. And again, I want to thank him for taking the time to join us. It's not often you get to speak to the people that help make the films you love growing up. So that's uh, always nice to do. Cam, the question goes to you, sir. What are
1: we doing next week? Yes, we are going to be celebrating Valentine's Day. We've never really done this in the past over the last couple years of the podcast, but we have some, I think, holiday appropriate programming. We are going to look at 2018's The Spy Who Dumped Me, starring Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon.
0: That's right, folks. Snuggle huggle up for this one. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Spy Who Dumped Me and join us next week. If you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards at S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, just be thankful you're not spending the evening at HR Geiger's house. <laughs>